0: Hello, welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on, and speak to some of the people behind the headlines.
1: This week, the podcast is a tale of two tech summits. We'll open with the news that Web Summit, taking place in just under two weeks, has a new CEO following the dramatic commercial fallout after its founder made political statements about the Israel-Hamas war. And we'll close with a dispatch from the UK's highly anticipated AI summit
0: going on this week. We're also going to discuss the latest news on the strikes at the buy now pay later giant Klana and the new 30 million euro fund launched by the heir of the billionaire Italian family behind the fashion brand United Colors of Benetton, Alessandro Benetton. Then we'll be chatting to our senior reporter and Nordic correspondent, Mimi Billing, about the rise of Novo Nordisk, the Danish company behind the miracle diabetes and weight loss drugs, Ozempic and & Wigovi, and now Europe's most valuable company, and what that all means for startups. We've written so much about these weight loss drugs. It's insane. They're the new hot thing. So last night, Alan and I were at... The very exclusive Andreessen Horowitz opening party in London. We had to queue. We had to queue to get in. This never happens. It was raining. It was London. We had to queue. But then we got spicy margs. And point of the story is that I was chatting to Zimazar, the newsletter writer and AI exponential technology guru, and he really thinks that these diabetes weight loss drugs are going to have enormous influence and impact on lots of things. He was saying he reckons that aeroplane company shares will go up because the population at large will be less large and therefore <laughs> will require less fuel to be carried across the sky apparently crisp creams share price is already down it's like wow It's wow. like the are the ramifications of this stuff gonna be so huge are that many europeans really gonna lose so much weight and change their lifestyle so much i don't know readers i mean listeners let us know your thoughts crazy yeah wild anyway
1: would you like to go on with the news
0: first up one of europe's largest tech events website has appointed a new ceo just weeks before its event kicks off in lisbon this has happened after its former ceo and co-founder paddy cosgrave was forced to resign over politically sensitive comments he made about the israel hamas war on social media eleanor what are the details
1: Yeah, so Catherine Mayer, who was previously CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, has been announced as the events company's new CEO. And the former CEO, Patty Cosgrave, resigned earlier this month after comments he made on Twitter, calling Israel's military action war crimes, which led major speakers and sponsors of the event to pull out.
0: Yeah, so sponsors, including Meta, Google, Stripe, and Intel, and lots of high-profile speakers have pulled out. And I guess the big question now is whether this new CEO is enough to turn things around or whether the fact that Paddy Cosgrave still owns 81% of the company, does he need to sell his shares for the company to kind of turn things around? Is this a one web summit thing and it will blow over and people will attend and sponsor future ones? think we're not really sure yet, but again we're interested to hear your views. This
1: but we can say that last year Slush also got into some political controversy when the winners of a startup competition at Slush were actually founders of Russian origin. The the company that they were building was in the UK, um, and the company was helping tech talent get visas to come to the UK, and some of the people who they had worked with were Russian citizens. They also worked with many different countries. That was a really big thing at the time, and this year, no one's really talking about that. So we'll see if this is similarly kind of something that just blows over. I'm not sure. Next, we have more news from buy now, pay later fintech Klarna. Last week, Mimi Billing, our Nordic correspondent, wrote about the news that two trade unions representing Klarna employees in Sweden were going on strike on November 7th. And this week, two other unions with members at Klarna have announced that they're going to strike in sympathy. Amy, tell us about the reasons behind the strike.
0: So, the unions want what's called a collective agreement, which is a very common thing in Sweden, which would mean that Klarna would have to negotiate any big changes it wants to make, like layoffs, for example, with the unions. This is really, really common in Sweden. Around 90% of employees there are covered by this kind of thing, a collective bargaining agreement, regardless of whether they're members of a trade union. Klarna's CEO, Sebastian Samotkowski, tweeted that he wants to continue discussions on this matter, but that the current collective agreement that's on the table is not something that he wants to sign up to.
1: I guess this is really sensitive right now for these unions after Klarna did some big layoffs recently, right? And so in the future. I think that the employees are hoping that they would have to be brought in first before Klarna were to be able to make those sorts of big changes. But it's not all employees behind the strike. And I don't think that all employees who work in Sweden for Klarna are even represented by unions. You don't, it's not mandatory to join a union to work somewhere in Sweden. And there's even one union who has decided not to declare a sympathy strike and says that it wants to continue the discussions with the company and reach an agreement.
0: Yep, yeah, and this has all kind of been exacerbated in recent times because earlier this year it transitioned some customer service roles um, to this third party company called Foundever, And it's announced that it's going to do a similar thing again, and it's going to transfer some people who work both in customer service and also in a- operational areas like anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing to Foundever and also to Accenture. Um, people familiar with the matter told us that as many as 500 roles could be affected.
1: And lastly, we have some news from Italy.
0: Yeah, so this week we scooped that the heir of the billionaire Italian family behind the fashion brand United Colors of Benetton, Alessandro Benetton, is making his first move into tech investing with the launch of a new VC firm called 2100 Ventures. Eleanor, what do we know about the fund?
1: So we know that Benetton is the main LP of this new €30 million fund, we also know that fundraising has closed, so if anyone was trying to get their check in there, sorry, you're going to have to wait for fund two. The other LPs in the fund are a bunch of high net worth Italian individuals. And it's interesting to see this in the context of a bunch of Italian private wealth kind of starting to wake up and find its way into startup investing. Italy has an incredible amount of private wealth. But until recently, not much of that was put into early-stage startups. And to be fair, there really wasn't much of a startup ecosystem in the country. But now we've seen a couple of wealthy Italian families, including the Ferrari owning Agnelli's, the techno gym owning Alessandri's, and the Berlusconi Media Dynasty dipping their toes into venture investing in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, fun, fun fact about the fund is that it has three partners and their first name is all oh, Andrea. They have all previously worked as investors and startup operators around Europe and with the fund they will be focused on backing business-to-business startups in fintech, saas and climate tech based all around Europe at pre-seed and series a. They also plan to invest uh, more than half of the fund to companies with Italian founders.
1: And I guess the other thing is that obviously Italy is still a pretty small startup ecosystem. And so it is unlikely that the companies who would raise from this kind of an investor would go on to raise from only Italian investors, right? Or even only have their business in Italy. So the three general partners, the three Andreas, are going to split their time between Milan and London. And... They want to play kind of a feeder fund type role to act as a link between founders in Europe's more nascent tech ecosystems like Italy and
0: ecosystems where there are later stage funds with more capital. And it's just another example, I guess, of how it feels like Italy is a very exciting, still nascent, but exciting ecosystem right now. And another thing that's interesting to note is that the three Andreas all previously left Italy and have since come back like many italian founders so you know previously italy wasn't a place where you could really grow a tech career or maybe perhaps wanted to start a company but now things are changing and so i think we're going to see some some exciting stuff come out of italy in the next few years and i wouldn't be surprised if lots of vcs are sending scouts on missions to scope out what's going on there
1: And for our first interview, we have senior reporter Mimi Billing, who has been reporting on Novo Nordisk, the Danish company behind the miracle, quote unquote, diabetes and weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Wegovi. The company has seen its stock soar by 210% in the last three years, a rare situation for a listed company during this financial downturn. And now it's Europe's most valuable company valued at $430 billion. Its holding company, Novo Holdings, reaps one quarter of the dividends paid by Novo Nordisk. A chunk of that cash, which is about $1 to $2 billion a year, is put aside for investing in and building health tech startups. Mimi, welcome back. Mimi, tell me what Ozempic is, and why has the rise of the company been so big and so
2: fast? Well, Ozempic is a diabetic drug. And, uh, it's obviously also shown to actually be a, like weight loss drug in some way. So it isn't just for people with diabetics type two that has been able to use this drug in a good way, but also people who find themselves a bit overweight. That's why it has been such a huge success, especially in the US. And this Nova has been working with diabetics drugs for a long time and they are obviously quite good at it. So both Vigavi and uh some examples of this and then you obviously have I mean Novo Nordisk is part of a bigger company and that's Novo Holdings they are actually managing the assets you could say uh of Novo Nordisk Foundation which is like <laughs> this huge foundation with about I think they have a net worth of 107 billion dollars last year so obviously it's a lot of money And uh, for a Danish company, this is obviously the biggest one in Denmark as well.
1: So Nova Holdings has all this money, billions of dollars, as you've just said. And it's also investing a lot of that into startups, but it's not kind of like a regular VC. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So if we look at the rankings of investors, yes, Nova Holdings is high up on those ones in the Nordics, but they are mainly investing in biotech, right? And in uh, life science in comparison to, for example, the other ones like Shinnevik, Curandum, Northzone, we know those names. They are investing mainly in tech, right? But how they do this, it, is obviously in loads of different stages, both the early stages, but also up to later stages. And the latest stages mainly investments as we know it, but the early stages, they actually work more as a company builder. So instead of just investing in early stage startups, they find the science that they want to build a company, and then they actually set it up with the kind of CEOs within their network and with the scientists as well. And usually they move it, the company to the Nordics to actually have it very nearby the kind of investment team so they can work with it. So this is quite interesting. And they do that for about two to four companies a year, the up and uh, invest about 200 million in this early stage startups a year. So that's quite a lot for early stage.
1: And so is the goal that those companies might be one day products or making products that Novo Nordisk could buy or sell? Or what's kind of the goal with that?
2: I mean, obviously, they don't do diabetics. Nova Holdings is like staying away from what, what Novo Nordisk is doing because it's a separate entity. So what instead they do is they create these kind of biotech companies within drug development and so on to actually become maybe another company that could actually go really far. And could make even more money for (laughs) the bigger company.
1: And so not every health tech company will do for Novo Holdings. What kind of companies do they want to invest in more specifically?
2: Yeah, I interviewed the head of seed investment, So that is what I know what they want to invest in. And for the next couple of years, they're into RNA, which is like not similar to DNA, but we all know about DNA. But RNA was amongst other things used to make the... COVID vaccine, for example. And uh, so that is one of the areas they're looking into. In the next couple of years, they will start looking into more stem cells as well, which is obviously very interesting. And they're also looking into more metabolic cardio space with diseases such as heart attack, stroke, insulin resistance, and fatty liver disease, etc. So I think they probably look into more spaces than these, but these were the ones that he picked up.
1: And so obviously, you know, we wegovy they're not the only kind of drugs that are being developed out there as weight loss drugs. Um, you also covered some interesting news this week about another potential similar treatment.
2: Yeah, and I think it's everyone is saying that this is weight loss drugs, but they're not actually, right? They are for diabetes patients mainly, but then they've been picked up by others. So another company that's doing this for pre-diabetics which is not actually a disease Uh, it's a condition it's called but obviously it could lead to the disease so this swedish company is called SeaGrid therapeutics and they're just coming out now with a supplement that they're starting selling in the us and they raised about four million euros to be able to do this and they've been working on this for a long long time uh well not a long long time but they started with research in 2008 And created the company in 2014. So that was nine years ago. And it's first now (laughs) that they're actually able to actually set something out there for consumers. So what this supplement is doing is it's lowering your blood sugar, which is more or less what also diabetic strikes are doing. So they're lowering your blood sugar so you won't get this kind of sugar spikes after a meal and so on, which will also then in the long run make you lose weight because you won't get any kind of cravings and so on. And so I, I spoke to one of the founders and she is obviously very happy to get this out now, to get this on the market. And it's starting in Florida because obviously there is a lot of vanity. There's a lot of fat people and uh, and also a lot of rich people, which is a perfect combination for something like this. Uh, <laughs> so we will have to wait. Well, in Europe, we're not as fat, we're not as rich and we're not as va- vain either. So we'll have to wait for about... You know, a year at least, a year and a half probably before we well, at least until next year before we can uh, start seeing this in the markets. But I, I do think this is really interesting because obviously, secret therapeutics has been riding the sempic wave, and there's a lot of other companies that have been doing this as well. Obviously, but it's it's kind of interesting that all of a sudden investors seem more interested in this kind of well, I wouldn't call it like the fat space, but it's like weight loss, um, life science in this in this particular setting is quite interesting right now for investors
1: well we do know that obesity is a huge is an epidemic right especially in the united states where i'm from it, so yeah. i, and can a, I see mean how it's,
2: it's it's like two million yeah. people who dies every year of diabetes and obviously most of those people are overweight so it's by kind of making people less overweight we will also see less diabetes i would suppose
1: I love your hot takes on the difference between Europe and America, Mimi, Um, (laughs) but definitely watch this space um, because we at Sifted are also really interested to see how this unfolds and, and see how startups are innovating as well. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you.
0: And now we're going to Bletchley Park, once the home of the World War Two codebreakers and Alan Turing's Enigma machine, which this week hosted the inaugural AI Safety Summit in the UK. It's an idea launched by the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, but it was announced yesterday that it's going to keep going. It's going to be an ongoing series of events, a bit like COP for climate change. And South Korea is going to host the next edition of the event. So along with our esteemed colleagues, Tim Smith and Christina Gallardo in attendance were the US Vice President Kamala Harris, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and some well-known tech leaders like Elon Musk and OpenAI's Sam Altman. Um, So to give you a taste of what it was like there, we're going to play you an interview that Tim did Speaking to the AI safety researcher and founder Connor Leahy.
3: Right, so we're here at the UK's AI Safety Summit. I'm here with Connor Leahy, CEO and founder of Conjecture, an AI alignment and safety startup. Connor, what has been the mood in the room so far?
4: Honestly, it's been extremely positive. It's an incredible group of people that have been brought together here—a uh, real who's who's of, from industry, civil society, government, and the international community. I'm really, really, really impressed by the turnout and by how much the conversations have happened. That people, many people here are, are genuinely interested in. You know, some people obviously just have their, their party lines, but many people
3: are really here to think about AI, to learn about AI, and how the international community can address it. This summit is mostly focused on frontier models and there's been a lot of debate, uh, particularly on social media, between people like Meta's Jan Lecun and Max Tegmark about whether the most powerful models and the extrapolation of them pose an existential or like catastrophic risk. <laughs> I know that you think, or have said in the past, that these models could do so. What, what do you make of that debate, and how is that being handled today? Because a lot of people in industry now are saying that we shouldn't worry about LLMs becoming runaway systems. I think, in my experience,
4: the general public debate has been going the other direction. It's becoming more and more accepted that existential risk is a natural possibility. If you build systems that are more capable than humans at everything, at science, business, politics, etc., and you don't control them, well, and the machines will control the future, not humans. This is more and more widely accepted. Now, there is still pushback to these things. In particular, there's still some resistance to naming it explicitly, and especially you know, using the word existential. But I have found that many people have addressed this risk and have brought these up, both in misuse and in loss of control type scenarios. So these are very much issues that uh, people here are grappling with, that many people are because There is healthy disagreement around what this warrants, how true it is, and so on. But overall, I feel the mood is pushing
3: towards at least the acknowledgement of such risks. Acknowledgement is one thing. How do we move from that to something that can actually give people confidence that we will be safe from these systems? I know in the House of Lords, you've argued for a limit to compute on training big models and that they shouldn't be trained on ever bigger supercomputers and numbers of chips. How do we go from acknowledgement to something that actually does something? It's a good question, and it's not, a, not easy. And this kind of summit is not the
4: type of event where policy gets decided. It's a type of event where people get to know each other, where information is exchanged, where you learn, you build connections, and then in smaller sessions, usually either before the summit or after the summit, the real negotiations happen. So many of the negotiations that will come out of this summit have already happened in the past. This is very typical. And in the tomorrow, there will be a much more exclusive session of, I think, like 20 people, mostly tech CEOs and government heads of government where I expect the real discussions will happen. So while I think this summit so far has been a grand success at bringing international uh, groups of people together to take this seriously, I don't expect policy to come out of this event. But I think it will lay the groundwork
3: for the actual negotiations and policy drafting that will come in the following months. People often talk about you know Europe being the heart of regulation, the U.S. being the heart of innovation and investment. But we also have China here this summer. Have you had the chance to speak with any representatives from China? And what kind of you know what are they bringing to the summit? A little bit. I have talked to a
4: professor from a Chinese university, and uh, the course of course the Chinese delegation gave a, a, a very good speech this morning. My general feeling is is that China is positioning itself as being very interested in collaborating with the international community and international law to set up the necessary standards to build AI systems such that they will be beneficial to all humanity. This is what the Chinese delegate said in his speech earlier today. It was very explicit that China is absolutely committed to building AI for good, for the global good, and in cooperation with other nations internationally. I think this is a very positive sign. I think it's a very positive sign that both the Chinese delegation
3: and the American delegation could speak on. the same stage and both speak of positives for everybody we've never had a situation like this where one of the most powerful technologies has been developed largely in the private sector if you compare it to something like nuclear for instance what would you like to see in terms of you talked that there will be follow-ups to this like in your view what does good regulation look like and at what level there are many things that need to get done if we want things to go well.
4: Ultimately, this is an extremely hard problem that we're facing. The problem that we're facing is not that from AI itself. It's from the fact that technology is becoming ever more powerful. As technology becomes more powerful, so do the risks. And we as a society have to be able to deal with increasing risks of technology. This is not a problem that existed a 1,000 years ago. It, is a, it isn't a problem that existed 100 years ago. It's a problem that started existing around nukes and when we discovered genetic engineering and the ability to create synthetic bioweapons. And now we're getting into these technologies becoming ever more powerful. Different. So, the way I see things is, is that it is quite clear to me that existentially dangerous technology should not be developed by private actors without oversight, and generally probably shouldn't be developed at all, or at least it should be developed with such string and security measures that can we, rely, we can rely on it. It is the case that many components of, say, nuclear reactors or even nuclear bombs are built by private companies. This is a thing that is done and can work well if it is very carefully regulated and the onus of the safety, the burden of proof is on the company to prove why their systems are safe. Currently the main problem is that these companies are allowed to build systems that they themselves say are extremely dangerous and could increase the risks of you know, potentially massive destructive events. They're allowed to build these systems and deploy these systems and then they wait for the government or someone else to call them out to prove to show unsafety. This is unsustainable. It has to be the other way around. If, if you're a company that wants to build a nuclear reactor, It's your job to prove to the state and to the public why your system is safe. Why should we believe that your system should be deployed? And you do this before it is built and
3: before it is deployed. And this is currently the complete wrong way around in AI. And this is the minimum that we need. And finally, tell me what's going on at Conjecture. Last time we spoke, you were working on ideas of how to... P- predict what kind of capabilities a system might have before you finish a training run. How are you doing with that?
4: Yeah, we're making quite a lot of progress on that. So we're also focusing on um, more prosaic and useful tools and like assistant type of technologies. But ultimately, we're continuing our work on cognitive emulation, which is our approach to building AI systems that are powerful and useful and are composed more of. Uh, predictable, decomposable recipes rather than large black box agents. Uh, research is difficult and it takes time, but we are making progress. And so whenever I have a time off from all this policy
3: work, I enjoy working with my technical teams there, and we are making slow but steady progress. So there is hope that this kind of black box system, we might. there is a future where we will understand these systems better. I think it is completely possible. I think there are many ways. If we had enough time, you
4: know, if all of our greatest scientists took their time and we slowed down the scaling and the deployment of these dangerous systems for a few years, a few decades, I think it's absolutely possible that we could build fantastic extremely robust, provable systems that you know, really bring benefits to everybody and are completely controllable. But it takes time. It takes time. Building a controllable system and a understandable system is significantly harder than just building a system of some type. And this is really the important goal. I, I, one of the main goals, I think, policy is to buy the time and resources necessary to do this work. Thank
3: you very much, Connor.
1: And that's all we have time for today. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find our coverage on sifted.eu. You can also find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast
0: description. Please let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast. Uh, You can email me, amy at sifted.eu. And please join us next week. Bye.